0: Hello, and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Julianne Ross, deputy news and politics editor at MTV News. I'm filling in for Holly Anderson for the next two weeks while she drives alone into the desert. I'm serious, that's her idea of a vacation, and it's why we love her. This week, we'll hear from our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, with a lullaby for the baby Donald Trump kicked out of his rally. We'll also be taking you to the intersection of fashion and identity. MTV News style editor Haley Melodic speaks with fashion designer and U.S. Army First Lieutenant Julian Woodhouse about how his identity influences his fashion line. Then, Hannah Studemeyer tells us why she needed to organize a Black Lives Matter protest at Men's New York Fashion Week. Plus, MTV News correspondent Gabby Wilson takes us on a tour of the museum at FIT's exhibit on the history and transmutation of uniforms. But first, Senior National Correspondent Jameel Smith sits down in our New York studio with Democratic Congressman John Lewis of Georgia to talk comics. This past June, Congressman John Lewis of Georgia staged a sit-in to force Congress to vote in favor of gun control measures.
1: On occasion, Mr. Speaker, I have had what I call an executive session with myself. I wondered, what would bring this body to take action? What would finally make Congress do what is right? What is just? What the people of this country have been demanding? And what is long overdue?
0: It's a question Mr. Lewis has been asking for over 50 years. In 1963, when Lewis is 23, he was one of the keynote speakers at the historic March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Lewis is the only one of those speakers still alive today. He was on the bridge at Selma, Alabama in 1965, when protesters tried to march for voting rights and were brutally beaten by state troopers, a historic moment many say hastened the passage of the Voting Rights Act. He's 76 years old now, and he's still telling his story, this time in comic book form. Lewis and his two collaborators published the third installment of his graphic memoir, March, earlier this week. And they stopped by our MTV News studios to talk with our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith.
2: I'm joined here today by the creators of the March book series. And book three has just come out this week. Congressman John Lewis of Georgia is here with me.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Artist Nate Powell, who illustrated the book. Hey there, thanks for having me. And Andrew Iden, who works in Congressman Lewis's office and is a writer of the book as well. Hi, thank you so much for having us. First of all, Congressman Lewis, I have to ask, uh, this is the end of the trilogy and a long storytelling journey for you. How satisfied are you with the final product?
1: The first time I pick it up, I kiss the book. <laughs> because it is so complete. It is so whole. It is so moving. It tells the story. Some of it is really painful, um, but it's, it's finished. It is finished, and it's my hope the generation yet to come will have an opportunity to read, digest this book, and use it as a road map, mm. as a way to act, as a way to speak up and speak out and get involved and get in what I call good trouble necessary trouble. What does that necessary trouble phrase mean? That when you see something that is not right not fair not just you have an obligation a mission and a mandate to do something to assess something you cannot afford to be silent.
2: Gentlemen I want to ask you the same question I asked the congressman
1: you're at the end of
3: this journey too you were along with him the whole way So March Book One was the first book I ever wrote, Mm. Um, and it was the most terrifying process I've ever been through. Um, Mm -hmm. You have such a sacred responsibility when you touch John Lewis's story, when you touch the story of the movement. You don't want to leave anything out, but you have to tell a good story so that people read it and they're engaged and they don't fall apart with extraneous details. Um, One of the biggest challenges for us is that people have different accounts. People say different things happened at different times, and when you're trying to sort through all of that, how do you decide what's right? One of the great advantages we had is that this is the first set of books about this much time in the movement that had access to the primary documents. Because of the digital uh, changes in the last five or 10 years, so many of the primary records were all made available online. And so when we had a question, we were able to actually go directly to the historical record. So if there was a meeting and we needed to know more about it, We went to the meeting minutes and Mm -hmm. we knew who spoke and what position they took. And that way we were able to create a vivid picture that painted all of the characters instead of just focusing on one or two or three or four. And then at the end, you have to ask yourself, am I showing everyone's contribution? Am I explaining to the reader and to the people who may be inspired by this? exactly how messy and how many people had to contribute, had to go through pain, had to suffer in order for the society, for the culture and for the movement itself to get to a point where they could um, make that great leap. And you know, now I, I, I look back on it and it's like 600 pages and <laughs> I mean, my 20s are over and <laughs> it's, um, I, I, I don't think I'll ever do anything more important than this. I want
2: to get to the comic book form, and I'll start, Congressman, with a you know, different comic book that you read when you were about 17 years old, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. Congressman, can you tell me what that, you know, what that book did for you, what effect it had on
1: you? The book, Martin Luther King, Jr. and the Montgomery Story, I read it when I was about 17 and a half or 18. It changed my life. I heard of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. when I was fifteen years old. I mm. heard of Rosa Parks, and I met Dr. King mm. in 1958, at the age of 18. I met Rosa Parks, the drama of Montgomery, but the pickup of fun, a comic book, or some people used to call them funny books.
4: I saw you were gonna <laughs> go there. <laughs> uh,
1: to pick this little book up. It sold for ten cents. Mm. Twelve pages or fourteen pages. Fourteen. 14 pages, I digested, and it inspired me, it's, and I said to myself, if the people in Montgomery can do this, maybe I can do something, mm-hmm. and maybe I can make a contribution. Then I heard Dr. Cain speaking on the whole radio, right. and seemed like he was saying, John Robert Lewis, you too can make a contribution, you can get involved. <laughs> Nate, I want
2: to ask you about the moment in which, uh, you know, comes around the time the convention, 1964 convention is depicted in book three. And, you know, it's argued that it's the turning point for the movement for civil rights, not Montgomery, not Selma, not the March on Washington, not the bombing at the church. Why was that such a pivotal moment in the storytelling? And,
5: you know, how do you feel like graphically you needed to depict that? I understood on a, a cognitive and historical level Uh, what Congressman Lewis is saying when he's reflecting upon it being, in his opinion, the turning point of the movement, but it wasn't until really drawing that sequence, seeing it laid out, it was actually laying out the convention floor, working through their script in which, despite all their efforts uh, to, to push themselves into a position of having a voice with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the convention, despite playing by every rule like, arriving at the gates to find the doors shut on them. Only then was I really able to understand precisely how that can be construed as the turning point.
3: If you pick up book three, you realize it's much bigger than everything we've done before, because really it's two books. But we did the two books together so that all of the readers, all the young people, all the people who are trying to understand this history, understand how the Freedom Summer and the convention are so deeply embedded in what happened in Selma. People forget that many of the aspects of the Selma campaign were laid out in response to the church bombing in Birmingham. And what's so important for people today to understand is that it wasn't linear, that it was messy, it was chaotic, it went one way, it went the other. People had competing ideas. People pursued competing ideas. And that's okay because the people who were able to persevere through that and then go back to Alabama to take that defeat and turn it into fuel, they are ultimately the ones who built the new America
6: Mm.
3: because they showed us what courage is and then had the courage to go to Selma and we have to show how that played out because we're trying to dispel a lot of these, uh, we call it the nine word problem. Most students graduate from high school Mm -hmm. knowing nine words about the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and I have a dream. And that's it. Right. And we don't want to just tell them who the people are. We don't want to just tell them what happened. We want to show the process by which it formed itself. A lot of young people, all that history taken into account,
2: are opting not to vote in this election. They're you know, their preferred candidate may have lost and maybe they've lost faith in the government to address the needs of their communities. What and I want to hear from everybody on this, I'll start with the Congressman. What can they take out of these
1: books? I think out of these books, young people can understand and must understand that we have success. We have failures. But we never gave up. We never gave in. We never became bitter. We didn't hate. We continue to press on. And that's what we're saying. There's some ups. There's some downs. And when you're knocked down, you must have the capacity and the ability to get up and keep going. first time I got arrested, I knew somehow in some way we would succeed. To go on a freedom ride, to be beaten and left bloody and unconscious, to be beaten on that bridge in Selma, mm-hmm. have a concussion. I thought I was going to die on that bridge. But somehow in some way, I live to tell about what happened, and I've seen some of the fruits of the labor of so many people. And people must understand that. You cannot give up. You have to be persistent and keep pushing and press on. We were singing a song on that bridge as we crossed that bridge, and we were finally marched from Selma to Montgomery, pick them up and lay them down. And I think march is saying, in effect, pick them up, lay them down, and march on. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen?
5: Well, I... I guess I'd like to speak from the context, which sort of lent me uh, part of my social conscience as a teenager, and also the means by which to express myself. I come from the underground, you know, do-it-yourself punk rock subculture, and it has deeply influenced my life Uh, as we've all grown into and through our twenties, our thirties, our forties together. um, You know. typically sort of populated by a lot of folks on the far progressive left, along with like real and armchair anarchists and socialists and disaffected libertarians. I feel like I've, I've lost a little bit of patience for the recurring arguments against voting itself, uh, but particularly with the last five years of work on March, my patience gets a little bit thinner each time. I'm like, boo hoo, like parts of mainstream politics are a sham, they're a game. Do you understand? You, for most of you, you just have to get up, you're, and make sure you're registered, and then go take 45 minutes, and uh, you know, hopefully, do a little homework before that, and figure out what's good for your town, your neighborhood, your state. Boo hoo at your disillusionment with the process, like. There's very real blood spilled for you to be able to spend your lunch break casting a vote that may or may not directly affect you, but definitely directly affects millions and millions of other people who are your neighbors.
1: I say from time to time that the vote is precious. It's almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool or instrument we have in a democratic society, and we must use it we're now on the verge of potentially electing the first woman as
2: president of the united states maybe you you guys are not the ones to tell this story but there should be you know one would think a story told should secretary clinton win the election about the women's struggle for these similar kinds of rights i want to ask intersectionally how you know women obviously play a major role in march i want to ask more about like you know wouldn't how do you feel like that story should be told and frankly should it be a comic book
3: um if i'm totally honest there's a annual that comes out by the comic book legal defense fund that's going to come out on election day and they asked me to submit a short story nate's actually drawing the cover and the story i chose to write was the story of victoria woodhull who was the first woman to run for president in 1872 and she was the first woman to own a brokerage on wall street and she was also the first woman to, uh, to, her and her sister actually co-owned a newspaper in New York City. And so when she's running for president, she's got this preacher in um, Brooklyn, I believe, who was chastising her for um, saying, you know, this free love and, and women's rights, it's, it's hogwash, but at the same time was having an affair uh, uh, with another man's wife. <laughs> so her paper printed it. And as she's running for president, they arrest her and put her in jail. And she's. this is four days before the election. And she spends election day in jail. So the story I wrote was her experience, just those those four pages, I didn't have a lot of room, but was her arrest and what it was like for her to first go to jail. Just a small moment. But it raises this unbelievable historical parallel where every time a woman has run for president, every time she's pointed out the hypocrisy of men, they've tried to throw her in jail. Lock her up. Lock her up,
1: Congressman. Even in the... Civil rights movement, there were so many unbelievable women. They never, ever received the credit that they should have received. They did all of the, and I cannot say it, they did all of the dirty work, hard work. Some people think that Martin Luther King Jr. idea was to have a boycott. It was a black woman, a teacher who said we should boycott the buses. You had people like Fannie Lou Hamer in the Delta of Mississippi. Some people know Rosa Parks, they know Days of Bates in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. But ever, Rupert Ruben R. Smith, Diane Nash, countless individuals, separate from clog during all of the work, paving the way. And maybe, just maybe there should be a graphic novel dealing with the contribution of the women of the civil rights movement to tell their story—the pain, the hurt, they raised the children. Some of work as maids, but when they left those kitchens, those homes, they made it to the mass meetings, and they put their bodies on their lines also. Well you have your next assignment, gentlemen. <laughs>
5: <laughs> On it.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew, Nate, and Congressman Lewis. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Jamil Smith talking with Congressman John Lewis, Digital Director and Policy Advisor Andrew Iden, and graphic novelist Nate Powell. If you'd like to see a longer version of this interview, head to our website, mtv.com news. The men's version of New York Fashion Week happened last month, giving a forum for young upstart designers to vie for the spotlight, alongside a few bigger names like Theory and Tommy Hilfiger. One of those upstarts is Julian Woodhouse, a 26-year-old first lieutenant in the United States Army and the head of his own label. Our style editor, Haley Melodic, called Julian in South Korea, where he's stationed, to talk about how fashion intersects with his identity.
7: How do you find that fashion impacts people's lives?
8: I guess I go back to how it impacted my life. Fashion, I think, the clothing that you wear on your back is just, it's a, it's a way, one small way that you can express um, in a visual way how you feel on the inside, your confidence, having um, a good day, a bad day. Um, it could be the way that you see the world, the way that you see your position in the world. Um, and I think, I think it just kind of brings whatever you have in the inside outward.
4: Hmm.
7: That's especially interesting considering your work in the military, which is so tied to the uniform. Were you influenced mm-hmm. by the difference that you experienced in the times you were wearing the uniform versus maybe when you were, you know, dressing to go on doses?
8: I guess so, yeah. it's um, The uniform for me has an interesting effect. So I think whenever I, I do pull inspiration from the uniform, I would say it's more so in the way that A person appears in a uniform. The uniform is designed and we're kind of socialized into this culture, this army, this military culture to exude confidence, to, it's called command presence. (laughs) And, um, the uniform definitely does a really good job of doing that. I think that when it comes to the clothing that I, that I design, I think that that is definitely tied to that. I think the clothing that I design can make someone feel more confident or make someone appear more confident. But then I always tie in a lot of normal basics, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say, that really speak to more of the subtle parts of our personalities. Like, I just want to go outside and, you know, like go get a coffee or something around the corner.
7: Yeah, of course. No uniform required for that. Um, and then I want to go back a little bit to talk about your earlier life. Um, I know your parents were also in the military, which you've said was a major influence in your decision to join. Um, are any members of your family in fashion as well?
8: Uh, no. There, there's I have no one in the industry, but I did learn a lot from my parents when it comes to fashion. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents are very big fashion people, personally, of course just like, you know, like normal parent rules of, you know, like dress, you know, for the occasion or, you know, it looks like you come from a good family or like make sure you like people can see that we take care of you <laughs> when you leave the house. Um, but beyond that, I think that my mother definitely has such an amazing way of putting herself together. I mean, like this is the kind of woman that wears silk PJs to bed like every single night. <laughs> and like the same with my dad, like my dad has got Hundreds of shoes and matching suits and everything, and you know that was definitely a large part of my childhood.
7: Um, do you personally associate fashion with sexuality or gender?
6: Mm,
8: I don't think so. I think I'm. I think I'm beyond that. I kind of. I mean, when I am designing for Woodhouse, I definitely try to stick to just menswear. And like definitely, I, I mean, I think the one thing that I always do is I use overall the core of what house takes inspiration from women's wear as far as like fit and style philosophy is the two, the two terms that I've kind of coined and I reduce it to just options and different cuts and different lines and different things and different effects that clothing has on the body. And then I use that in men's wear. Hmm. I think that there are a lot more, there's a lot more utility, emotional utility as well as physical utility for women's wear than there is for men's wear. And so I just try to add that in. So I guess if there's anything to do with gender, I guess that would be, that would be it.
7: Yeah, I know um, you mentioned to the New York Times that you weren't looking to push men out of their comfort zone, but you think that they're looking for something more directed. Um, is that direction tied to, as you say, emotional utility more than just practical function?
8: Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, def- I mean, clothing already fulfills a, a physical function, I think. There is definitely a utility with having clothes on your back. <laughs> That's pretty simple. But I think, I think men are ready for something else, but due to maybe, I don't know, how volatile the fashion industry and the market can be, as far as finances are concerned, and, you know, like, I think that's the number one reason why the market just continues to give men what they know they will buy, Mm -hmm. as opposed to giving them something that they're not sure if they will buy, and I think that with Woodhouse, I try to, I mean... I'm a fashion designer, I'm running my own business, so I mean, of course, that's something that I take into account for every single collection, but I also try to um, do my research on trends, do my research on what's changing, do my research on how menswear is changing and how the interest in menswear is changing through, like, social media um, or what we see on the television or what we see on fashion shows and things like that. I think the reaction is very strong from men on men's week all around the world, yet I still go shopping and I end up, you know, looking for something that could be unisex in the women's section because mm-hmm. menswear hasn't caught up yet.
7: That's very true. I think it's, um, yeah, it's probably too early to say anything conclusive, but androgyny has always been code for masculine. I think it's only very recently yeah. that androgyny in and fashion has started to like, explicitly pull from women's wear. Um, do you think exactly. it's like, that's just like because of oversaturation in the market? Like, women are more of a point of interest as consumers, um, or does it speak to some sort of conservative ideals?
8: I think that it pulls from both, actually. Um, I think that um, it has to do with how we're cultured um, how we're socialized, um, men and women differently. Um, I think it has a lot to do with history, I think it has a lot to do with how um, like, social acceptance with or this, I guess, social history it's more accepted for women to care about what they wear on their back than for a man to care about what he's wearing on his back. Um, and we're definitely seeing a huge change in that, um, I mean, I mean, I live in Korea where men wear makeup. (laughs) and, you know, like, care endlessly about their image. It does nothing to their masculinity. Um, it just is their physical appearance, and they take a lot of effort. Um, or they put a lot of effort in how they appear, um, and I think that that's definitely something that is happening, and it's starting to change a little bit, which is really nice, I think. I think it's time for men to also have the option to, you know, put something on that's a little more eccentric and not have to sacrifice their masculinity for it.
7: Absolutely. Thank you again so much for speaking with us.
8: Definitely. Thanks for calling.
0: That was MTV Style editor Haley Melodic in conversation with fashion designer and First Lieutenant Julian Woodhouse. The Men's New York Fashion Week shows took place right after the killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. While attendees made their way towards the runway, they were greeted by a small group of silent protesters, wearing black shirts with the names of those killed by law enforcement and holding signs that said Black Lives Matter. Hannah Studemeyer, a Lanvin men's store worker, organized the protest. Haley Melodic sat down with Studemeyer in our New York studio to learn more about the protest and how the fashion world is addressing Black Lives Matter. Hi,
7: I'm here with Hannah Studemeyer. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. I appreciate
7: it. Um, So during the New York Men's Fashion Week, Mm -hmm. you staged
4: a Black Lives Matter
7: protest. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your decision to stage that.
4: So that protest has been on my mind for about two years. Um, Originally, I got the idea when Tamir Rice was killed in Cleveland. That one really hit hard, and it surprised me on how tough I took that and how I grieved it because I didn't know him personally, but, you know, I'm... I'm if it happened anywhere, I would steal he's a, he was a little boy. he was twelve years old, but especially because it was in Cleveland, and he was so close, like my daughter's nine, he's twelve. she plays imaginary things all the time in the air, so I just I kind of personalized it and, and I internalized it because that could have been her just at a park, just being a kid, and that's when I said something's wrong now we have to we have to do something or I I have to use whatever platform I have, although it may be very small, to do something.
7: And then um, I saw in another interview that you did, you said you were originally planning to wait until Mm -hmm. New York Fashion Week in September. Yeah. You
4: decided to bump it up. So I was going, so the first year, um, I didn't, to be honest, I, and I haven't told anyone this yet, so... I was afraid. I was afraid to do it. And I told my sister I want to do it, and I'm not usually a fearful person. But to stand, to take a stand like that takes courage. And I think a lot of people don't realize, or they may not realize how much it actually takes to take that stand and put your, and directly align yourself, your beliefs, everything that you've worked for, your reputation your every your identity and to align it with something you believe so strongly about in the public eye Mm -hmm. and um i was afraid because i knew i worked in fashion i could be held accountable for the things that i do and i didn't want to push off my personal convictions and attach them to my brand because they're totally separate Mm -hmm. but in real life, that's the way it is. You know, most people will associate how I feel being connected to Lon Vine, and in no way is it the same. That's just how I feel, and that's just where I work. <laughs> but I was afraid to do it because I just, I didn't know what, what people would think, how it would be received, and just actually following through. Like, that's a major uh, stance I would take. And it's serious, and it's it would be impactful in some way. So, I I was afraid and I stalled a bit because I thought people were going to be on board. Like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And when I asked a couple of, of my friends to do it, they were kind of like, all right, you know, like indifferent to it. Mm-hmm. And so I pushed it off and I told my sister, no, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And then that week happened. And then I all the fear just left. You know, it was just that day mm-hmm. I started texting and making plans. I wrote an email that night. And that was that, that email was the blueprint for the protest.
7: And in that email I saw that you said, you know, you gave a time, you gave a date, you told everyone to Mm -hmm. bring a Mm t-shirt that, you know, either said Black Lives Matter or had the name of Mm -hmm. a victim of police violence on it. Yeah. Why were those the parameters for your protest?
4: Those were the parameters because Mm -hmm. I still wanted to respect Fashion Week, so those parameters were set in place because I knew it would be silent and I figured If we're silent and we just let our shirts and the message speak for itself and what we're doing speak for itself, that will ring louder and truer than any chance we can do. Any, like, obnoxious screaming in your face, like, shove this down your throat, Black Lives Matter, you must take this. No, because that's not how I feel. I feel they do matter and I want to have a conversation about it and I want it to be on a level ground and I want everyone to be calm and I just want you to think about it and take something away from it so I wanted it to read as a newspaper Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a a sort of an installation like a human installation and you walk past and you just like daily news today Mm -hmm. this is what's happening and then these are the victims names and this is what I want you to do and that's why I wore the stop killing us shirt that's why that one said that and then our photographer, it was so funny, I was thinking, he had the shirt that said, don't shoot, and he's shooting us, you know? And so I love the, um, I love the irony on, in every level of it, and I love that it was diverse. I had every single um, race and nationality represented there and from every different industry. No, me and Rachel Johnson and one other protester was about the only ones that worked in fashion. Um, What was the most surprising
7: response you got from your protest?
4: So there were two. One was, again, a lot of black people, tastemakers, black stylists, black influencers, black models, did not, and anyone else, just attendees, didn't want to be associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. They um, ducked their heads. They avoided eye contact with me. They walked around the protest. They, like, put their nose in the air and walked past as if, you know, with their white counterparts, by the way. I'm, to let, as if to let them know, you know, I'm black, but I'm not that black. You know, I'm I'm not, I don't have anything to do with that. So me and you are cool, I that's not me. You know, those aren't my feelings. And I was very, I mean, that hurt, it, it almost stung after a while. I can't be mad at them because I was afraid, too. They're afraid to associate with us because they're afraid bloggers, maybe you'll lose your corporate sponsors or maybe whatever, whoever's paying you to wear that those clothes right now. You don't want to associate Black Lives Matter with that brand because that's not the on the agenda today. You're supposed to take your pictures, represent whatever brand you're wearing and keep it moving, you know, and a lot of them were my friends. A lot of them were my friends, fashion friends, bloggers, stylists that I worked with, they knew it was me, they walked past. They got unfollowed. <laughs> <laughs> I like they don't know it, but a lot of, all of you guys got unfollowed. Mm-hmm. All of you. And the ones who did embrace me, they, you know, acknowledged me. They said, I'm so proud of you. They came and gave me a hug while I was on the line. I said, Thank you. They acknowledged me. But that was two or three and I know well over fifty people who walked past me and so yeah. there, we're just we're done there because that's crazy, but um, the other the reaction that surprised me most was a photographer. He left the pit. He was fr- um, from Argentina, I believe, and he was on his way out. And he had his gear, and he crossed the street, and then he looked to see what everybody was looking at, and it was us. So he sets his tripod back up. He gets the shot, then he packs it back up, puts it back on his back, and this I know this equipment is heavy. He puts it back on his back and he didn't ask. He just got in line with us on the edge of our protest and put his fist in the air. And he stood with us for about five or ten minutes, like in solidarity. And everybody was just, we were like, we were—we wanted to start clapping, but it was a silent protest. But that warmed our hearts. Like, that that's what made it worth it. Yeah. And then the CEO of the Council of Fashion yes. Designers of America, Stephen Cove. So Stephen Cove, yeah. like he is my hero. And so that's the other thing. I saw him. So I was on the line. It was a silent protest and we weren't supposed to really break line. We had our hands up and we were out there for six hours. And when I saw him, I just immediately, without a second thought, I told my group, I'll be right back. And I ran off because he was about to get in his car. And I just ran up to him and I, um, you know, I didn't expect this to happen, but I just started crying. Like I broke down. I was like, I was trying to get out and articulate what you meant, what this meant for me. And I was like, you just have no idea. Um, We were out there for two hours, not even two hours. And and we got the news that the CFDA reposted our photo. And I said, that's all I wanted. I, that is all I wanted. And the fact that I saw the fruits of that labor so quickly in one day, and you did it without hesitation, um, because I know they had to to approve it with you. And he just said, he said, of course, why wouldn't I? Like, I, of course, I care about that. People are people. And he was like, come on, I would like, I didn't expect that. And so I just started crying. I was like, you, you have no idea this mean like for me for my personal life this means okay fashion does care because i was starting to worry about you guys i mean i work in fashion too but when that was happening it was you guys you know like i wasn't even associating with it anymore because i didn't want to believe you don't care about me because i'm black what if i was shot you wouldn't care it's just business as usual it's just the collections coming down the runway no like let's stop just for a minute let's pause Let's acknowledge. Let's say we do care, and then let's get back to business. You can do both.
7: Um, and you've said that you're planning to do this again for New York Fashion Week in September.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, have your plans changed at all? Knowing that the CFDA is supporting you, are there other
4: um, people you're looking to reach? Yeah, I am. I'm looking to reach some uh, a few designers and to be have it to be a bit more creative. I don't want to take away from the the overall, you know, point of Black Lives Matter. I don't want to get away from that at all, but I would like it to be more inclusive and to see black people actually doing more in the industry. So, I have my plans and I will I'll keep those plans and I'm not, I can't really disclose what they are because a part of the movement and it's titled Stop Talking, Do Something. And really quick, just to go back, that's why it was a silent protest because so many people were talking, 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 putting up memes and everything and saying they're waiting for the next Martin Luther King Jr. to come. Stop talking and why, why won't you do it? So that was, a, I included it all in the, the entire execution of the protest. We didn't talk. We just did something. I would like to see us work with a collection or a designer or even just be included in CFDA on a calendar, have an event, do something. And if they're not ready for it or it's not enough time, because I know it's around the corner, I'll still proceed with what I already originally had planned. Mm -hmm. But I would love to do both. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you still feel afraid? No. (laughs) Uh, After you do something like that, the fear left when um, we started walking down the street from West Fourteenth. All the, I mean, we walked all the way down, and people saw us, and we were just a small little movement. But to know, and I was in the front, and to know I was like leading this, and everyone is here because of me, and I, you know, I have a responsibility to uphold this protest. And when we first got in line and stood our ground and put our hands up, the it was so emotional, but the fear, it was like uh, adrenaline. The fear was gone, and that day, in that moment, I said, if I can do this, like, I can do anything. And so, no, I'm, like, empowered <laughs> now more than ever. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah. Thank you. I really
0: appreciate it. That was MTV Style Editor Haley Melodic interviewing Hanna Studemeyer. Earlier in the show, we heard from designer and army man Julian Woodhouse about how being in uniform inspires his collection. We wanted to dig a little deeper into the world of uniforms and their connection to fashion. Luckily for us, the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology has an exhibition up and now until November 19th called Uniformity. It takes a look at the history of certain types of uniforms and how they have an impact on everything from high fashion to what we wear on an everyday basis. MTV News correspondent Gabby Wilson took a visit to the museum to speak with Emma McLendon, assistant curator at FIT, who started off by explaining what draws her to uniforms in the first place. I personally
9: have always been very interested in uniforms. I think the dichotomy between fashion and uniforms is pretty fascinating. I think they give a really unique window into social life and how culture reacts to clothing. And so when I was in the collection, I, Re- started to realize, particularly as I was working with our menswear collection, how strong our holdings of actual uniforms are. And from there, the concept just evolved. Once I knew we had the basis in our collection to actually create the show, then it just went very fluidly from there. I'll take you guys to the back. I think one great area to talk about with military uniforms is camouflage. It's something we're seeing a lot in fashion in the last couple years. And it's also pretty unique, I think, to military uniforms and where we are with military uniforms. So we've got this great platform here, cross-section of a lot of different types of camo. Um, Camouflage is, of course, the ultimate example of a military uniform being designed to blend in, right? So it really is a product of guerrilla warfare becoming such a big aspect of conflict during the 20th century and it's first developed by the French during World War One and originally camouflage was actually hand painted onto uniforms. I've heard that supposedly the hand painting was also designed so you could wash it off at a moment's notice if all of a sudden you needed to pose as a civilian wash off that really distinctive distinctive pattern. Of course we all are familiar with the kind of abstract splotches that make up camouflage they're really designed as an optical illusion they of course appear on uniforms but also on equipment etc what we have on view in the center of the platform is a great example of what U.S. military forces wore during World War II, and as you can tell, it's really different than what our troops wear now because it's not the entire uniform. It's a poncho and then a helmet cover, and it would have been worn over a standard-issue uniform that would have been olive drab, green color khakis, etc. So what's great is that on the edge of the, because it's a poncho on the edge, you can see where it's draping, that it's reversible so i'm sure we all are familiar with the fact that camouflage really depends on the environment the terrain that you're in for what colors you get so what we've chosen to show is this tan and brown color selection but then you can see on the reverse it's a much richer deeper green so you could switch it out at a moment's notice if all of a sudden you found yourself in more wood wooded environments now obviously with fashion camouflage is all about standing out, right, right? rather than blending in. So we've got a lot of examples of camouflage used by designers here um, from John Galliano by Christian Dior, Michael Kors, uh, Vera Maxwell, a bit of an earlier example from the 1970s, and then John Bartlett over in the corner. Now, the John Bartlett one is really interesting. It's brightly colored, orange, pinks, reds. And also, if you look really closely, you'll notice the print isn't actually abstract splotches. Instead, it's the silhouette of dogs. It's actually his own dog named Tiny Tim, who's three-legged. So it's a very whimsical, fun take
10: on this hyper-masculine, very also powerful, strong print. You mentioned that camo is a thing that's... um used by fashion a lot that comes from military uniforms. And I think that other aspects of military uniforms are uh, used in high fashion often too, like with epaulets and how those things are structured. Why do you think that military is so frequently referenced in uniform aesthetic fashion?
9: Uh, I think there's a couple reasons. There's, you know, obviously with anything in fashion, there's so many different factors going into it. Military uniforms are really designed to convey power, authority, strength, and I think that this this effect as a design strategy is really appealing to a lot of designers. They want to endow their wares, their collection, with a similar kind of authoritative look, and so it very kind of naturally flows out of military uniforms. I also think a big factor into thinking about how military uniforms have become part of just everyday clothing, whether it be high fashion or what you and I just wear on an everyday basis on the streets, is also about the counterculture movement, particularly of the mid 20th century, the 1960s, early 1970s. During that time, a lot of people would go to Army, Navy surplus stores, buy actual surplus military gear and wear it as a form of protest. So this is where we get flared jeans, the army field jacket, even pea coats becoming a big part of just everyday basic clothing and that basic wardrobe that we were talking about and it's during that same period we see big designers like Yves Saint Laurent particularly engaging with that aesthetic and creating couture versions of it so I think that's a really important factor and particularly with camouflage you know camouflage and its entrance into high fashion is coming straight out of street style it's coming straight out of that moment when you know whether it be the punks or the hippies were buying camouflage fatigues wearing it deconstructing it making it their own as a really strong aesthetic statement which of course carries on through the 80s and into the 90s and that's where we see designers like John Galliano using camouflage as a key element of his 2001 collection it's very much coming out of that moment where he was in school where he was really kind of formulating his style during the 1980s camouflage being such a big part of street style at the time
10: Um, you're seeing quite a lot of camouflage coming out of hip-hop style right now as well and I think that what you're saying really speaks to that kind of trend Uh, hip-hop having a lot of brushing up against Mm -hmm. military and Mm -hmm. police in particular. Um, Do you think that uniform in military gives too much authority? I would say no
9: only because that's what it's designed to do. That's always been what it's historically designed to do. I think where we get into the problem of the militarized look is in police uniforms. Mm -hmm. And we actually do have a police uniform on view that we can talk about as well because it's modeled immediately after naval uniforms Mm. it looks completely like them it looks almost identical to naval uniforms we have on view here and police uniforms were very consciously designed when modern police forces first formed in the 19th century they were very consciously designed to look like military uniforms Mm -hmm. and so obviously today with the debate and all the discussions going on about policing and police brutality etc it is somewhat problematic to think of this militant force Mm -hmm being out there on the streets with civilians. Because I think the point is with military uniforms, technically speaking, they're not designed to engage with civilians. They're designed to engage with other military forces. So in my mind, the notion of the strength, power, and authority isn't as problematic there. Where it becomes problematic is when you have the police wearing full militarized SWAT gear Mm -hmm. and being up against unarmed protesters, that's where it's problematic. And I think that as we go further in and continue to discuss this in mainstream culture, that we might see the police uniform kind of start to shift. It might end up having its own kind of evolution in relation to that.
4: Yeah,
10: do you have any idea of what that might look like? Because it's such a strange thing to have to balance, Mm -hmm. right? having a physical authority right. but not being overtly oppressive.
9: Right. I you know I, I'm not sure what what look it would take. You know, I do think that there is a certain element to the fact that police uniforms are incredibly important within the overall history of uniforms because they really were the first Professional uniforms that we saw out on the street during the 19th century. They really were designed to instill social order Which I think is an important aspect of policing But obviously now there's so much else going on and so such a bigger debate that maybe we will see it start to change Maybe it will cross over more towards what we see people wearing in more work environments Mm -hmm. Professional environments, but that remains to be seen
10: I think that's really interesting. And these things are so familiar and they're so integrated into our everyday wardrobes that you kind of forget that they come from this very like practical and specific space.
9: Absolutely, absolutely. And hopefully that's a kind of takeaway that people have from the show is just, no matter which uniform they're looking at it gives them food for thought about something that they may be just engaged with i think with uniforms we're so used to letting them fade into the background mm-hmm. they're sort of invisible but omnipresent we're trained just socially coded to kind of let them go unnoticed until we need them right, right? that you kind of
10: are subliminally aware but you're right. not really they're almost engaged. They're almost fixtures in our environment, like a yeah. lamppost or like right. a trash
9: Absolutely. Can. <laughs> and so getting people to kind of think about the history behind that, think about even what they're doing mentally when they see these pieces. You know, we have right at the front of the gallery a fireman's uniform. It doesn't say anything on it the way but everybody immediately knows it's a fireman's uniform because of the hat. Right. And I and I point out, of course, to students, you know, we have elevators here on campus, and in the elevator there's a button and it just has a fireman's helmet on it. It doesn't say help, Mm
4: -hmm. it doesn't
9: say fire, it doesn't say any of that. You know exactly what it is, because so much of uniforms is about carrying information, carrying it very obviously, carrying it through
10: shape and design. Thank you so much for walking me through this exhibit. It's really, I wish we had even more time to go painstakingly through each outfit because I would love to spend the rest of my day here.
0: That was MTV News correspondent Gabby Wilson speaking with assistant curator Emma McLendon at the museum at FIT. close things out, our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, is back with a lullaby for the baby Donald Trump ejected from one of his rallies this week.
6: Hush, little baby, don't say a word. We all know that Trump is absurd. He loves to say some awful things, but we should beware the support he brings. His brand of hate's too big to fail, which leads us to this terrible tale. A tale of racism and fear that cling to the orange man who would be king. He's built an empire on lies and greed, a monster that the GOP feeds. By catering to an American dream that's really just a pyramid scheme. Taking all the money straight to the top, but not trickling down a single drop. Blaming immigrants for the unlivable wage and making Muslims targets of rage. Trump shouts out what they won't say, but they'll write into policies every day. If we reap what they have sown, you'll have to fix it when you are grown. But hush, little baby, don't you cry. You want to stop Trump, and so do I.
0: That's The Stakes for this week. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy News and Politics Editor at MTV News, filling in for Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening.
10: This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts. And subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.